0: Everybody could turn with me once again, please, to the book of Zechariah, and I'd like to read again chapter 1, and the first six verses, Zechariah 1, verses 1-6. through six. Zechariah 1, verse 1, it says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah the son of Berechiah, the son of Idor the prophet, saying, The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? The prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I command my, commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, Like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us, according to our ways and according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. And again, we believe God will bless the reading of his word to us this morning. Yesterday we learned about this man, Zechariah. We learned several things. We learned, first of all, that he was a young man, a teenager. We learned that as well as being a young man, he was from a priestly family. He was from uh, the priestly family that in normal circumstances would have been preparing his heart and mind for a day when he would function as a priest in the house of God. But, of course, because of the sin and rebellion of the nation of Judah, um, uh, he were, the temple had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And so uh, we find not only is he a, a young man that had a passion for the house of God, he wanted to see it rebuilt. And uh, God was going to use him along with an older man called Haggai, and together they would preach and encourage the people who were discouraged to rebuild the house of God. We also learned yesterday that not only was he concerned with building the house of God, he was also concerned about maintaining the holiness and the order of the house of God. And the reason we know that is because the Lord Jesus tells us in Matthew 23 that Zechariah paid the ultimate price. He was actually murdered in the house of God killed by the religious people of his day, uh, like the modern-day scribes and Pharisees the Lord Jesus was speaking to. And uh, obviously what they were doing had upset him, and he had confronted them about their departure from the Word of God and had paid the ultimate price. And so what we could say is, without hesitation, is that one of the things we've been talking a lot about young people, one of the things that we need to be praying for is that God would raise up people like Zechariah, young people, with a passion for the house of God. For both building the house of God, of course, we recognize we're not thinking of bricks and mortars today, but we're thinking about, as uh, we heard about, the fish gate, about leading souls to Christ and having new stones added to the building that God is building right now. This spiritual house that he's building. One of the things that I encouraged the students uh, in uh, India was that perhaps somewhere in a remote village in India, one of those uh, young men will be leading the last person to Christ in the church, and then the rapture will come. The, the building will be complete. And I said, well, what a thrill to think you could be that person. And we, we could be that person, maybe even in the park this week. Maybe it could be one person that you lead to the Lord in a conversation this week, and the Lord says, that's it, it's finished, and we're gone. Isn't that going to be, I would say that would be a lot better way of going than flying back with Delta Airlines, wouldn't it? Uh, <laughs> tremendous. Um, and uh, so um, certainly we want young people with a passion for building the house of God, and also we want young people with a passion for maintaining the order of the house of God, that have convictions about the old paths. I, I, I love that verse, uh, Jeremiah 6.16, because I do think you cannot improve on the wisdom of God. God has given a pattern of how we're to meet. And, you, you know, of course, we recognize that sometimes the problem is it's never with the pattern, it's with our hearts. That's the problem, isn't it? The Lord's Supper is a wonderful thing. It can be as dry as old sticks if our hearts are not right. So what needs to change is not the pattern, but we need to change. We need to be what God would have us to be. But we should have a passion for the the order of the house of God. So we, we're thinking about this man and we were asking the question, why did he minister? And of course we've already hinted at it that he wanted to encourage the remnant, 50,000 that had gone back after the Babylonian captivity. They had started uh, well, they had laid the foundation. As soon as they got back into the land of Judah, the first thing they did was they recognized that they, they needed to build the temple and so, so they laid the foundation. But opposition came and they stopped and the work ground to a halt and so all you had was was a foundation, but you had no structure. And so they gave up. And of course, uh, Haggai tells us that what happened was that they started kind of building their own houses. And I recognize that initially it was probably opposition, but after a while, they just got comfortable kind of living their 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 Jerusalem dream or whatever you want to put it. And they had kind of neglected the things of God. And so they needed stirring up to get back involved and getting their priorities right. So uh, certainly. This young man is encouraging them to do that, to rebuild the temple. But also, he goes a lot further than Haggai does, and he talks about the fact that what they're involved in is something that is going to have tremendous implications down the road. In fact, he's going to talk about the future of Jerusalem, its trials and its ultimate coming glory. And so we're going to see some of those things as we look at it today. Uh, But what I wanted to do is just kind of run through some of the contents of the book and uh, just kind of give an overview this morning a little bit about this book of Zechariah. And there are some unique things about it, especially in terms of the minor prophets. For instance, he alone among the minor prophets mentions Satan. In chapter 3, verse 1, Lord willing, tomorrow we look at that passage in Zechariah chapter 3. And so he mentions Satan. He also is the only person in the Old Testament outside of the book of Daniel that mentions Alexander the Great, at least alludes to him in uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. He's the only prophet in the Bible that tells us that in the coming millennial kingdom... The Lord Jesus will reign not only as a king, but as a priest upon his throne. And let's just uh, read that verse. It's a tremendous verse, 6.13. Uh, Zechariah 6, verse 13. uh, Well, read from verse 12. It says, Speak to him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch... "...he shall grow up out of his place, he shall build the temple of the Lord, even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both." I think if you know anything about your Old Testament you realize that those two offices were never to be mixed there were uh, kings that wanted to act like priests and they went into the temple and tried to burn incense and they became lepers because God judged them because God intends that there will one day be a king who is also a priest but it's going to be the Messiah the Lord Jesus and Zechariah tells us that of course we know from uh, the book of Genesis that he's going to be of the order of Melchizedek and remember that Melchizedek Zedek was both king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. So there we have that picture, but certainly Zechariah is the only one that mentions that, uh, that Christ will be a priest as well as a king in the millennial reign. He also gives more details concerning the battle of Armageddon than any other prophet. In Zechariah 12 and 14, Uh, We're going to see that, and of course, hopefully maybe Saturday morning, if the rapture hasn't occurred, we'll we'll go in the Battle of Armageddon on Saturday morning. We'll end there, but that's certainly what this man mentions. Also, he is the only prophet that calls the land of Israel the Holy Land. Chapter 2, verse 12, "...the Lord shall inherit Judah his portion." In the Holy Land and shall choose Jerusalem again. Of course, we are very familiar with that term, right? We we talk about going to the Holy Land or the Holy Land experience, but it comes from the book of Zechariah. The only place you'll find it in the whole of the Word of God. So he certainly has a lot of unique things to say. Also, we are going to say this about him, and we already mentioned this in our introduction, uh, introductory five-minute remarks, that um, he is the the person in the old testament who mentions more about the lord jesus perverse than any other prophet Isaiah does have more about the Lord Jesus than Zechariah, but he takes 66 chapters to do it, and there's a lot of other stuff in between, whereas uh, Zechariah distilled all this amazing information. Now, I want to think about this because Rex mentioned about discipleship and about one of the first things you start with is the Word of God. Uh, What the Bible teaches, by the way, when we were in Ireland and we were church planting in Ireland, we would use what the Bible teaches as actually an evangelistic Bible study. And we would be kind of leading people to the Lord and discipling them at the same time. And it was a tremendous tool. And I thought, when I'm there, I'm not interested in reinventing the wheel. And I found that that was a tremendous tool. And I still use it to this day. We're discipling a couple in our assembly. And we're using every Monday nights. We meet with them what the Bible teaches. And it's a tremendous resource. But one of the things that that does talk about in one of the early chapters is that how do we know the Bible is true? Now, I want you to think about this. How would a teenager, 520 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, possibly know the life story of the Messiah? How can you explain that? How could this teenager possibly know details like this, that the Lord Jesus, for instance, look at Zechariah 9, verse 9, would ride into Jerusalem... uh, It says in Zechariah 9 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, upon a colt, the fall of an ass. Of course, we know that the triumphal entry, so called, of the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus literally fulfilled this, didn't he? And it's mentioned in all of the Gospels. And so here's the question, how could he possibly know that 520 years before the Lord Jesus was born? How would he know that the Lord Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver? Let's look at this uh, reference, Uh, chapter 11, Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. I said unto them, If you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, cast it into the potter, a goodly price that I was prized that of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Now, again, that's tremendous detail, isn't it? Not just that it would be 30 pieces of silver, but all this connection with the potter, casting it in the house of the Lord for the potter. Well, if you remember that they would, when Judas uh, had remorse about what he had done, uh, he, he took the money back. And they said, well, we can't put that in the temple treasury. It's blood money. And so he just threw it down on the floor in the temple. And they then went and took it and they bought what was called the potter's field. Now, how could a teenager know that 520 years before it happened? The only explanation is the divine inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. Isn't that the only logical explanation? What about detailing his crucifixion? Chapter 13, Zechariah 13, verse 7. A tremendous scripture. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, smite the shepherd, And the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hands upon the little ones. Again, quoted in the New Testament directly by the Lord Jesus himself uh, as he anticipated Calvary and recognizing that what would happen to his disciples, that they would forsake him and they would flee. And he said, uh, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Again, Zechariah tells us those details. Uh, Zechariah 12 verse 10 A tremendous verse that, again, is quoted by John in John chapter 19. It says, I'll pour on the house of David, Zechariah 12.10, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And that simple thought of them looking on him whom they've pierced. Speaking of the crucifixion, of course, it's going to have prophetic fulfillment. In a coming day, when that day that all Israel shall be saved... That will happen when they will look on him whom they've pierced, and it will suddenly dawn on them, we have crucified our own Messiah. But again, how would this teenager know that 520 years before the birth of Christ? Uh, His coming again, his feet standing on the Mount of Olives. Uh, Chapter 14, verse 4, his feet shall stand in that day on the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem in the in the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof, toward the east and toward the west there'll be a great valley. And half the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half it toward the south. And of course the Lord Jesus, when he ascended to heaven, he left the Mount of Olives. And what he said is, uh, the angel, as the disciples were gazing up into heaven as the Lord Jesus ascended, he says, uh, Why stand ye gazing into heaven? This same Jesus shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go. And guess what's going going to happen. His feet will stand in that day on the Mount of Olives, and there'll be a tremendous earthquake, and it will be beginning of some of the amazing topographical changes that will take place in the Millennial Kingdom. And of course, he's going to mention some of them. Uh, For instance, there's going to be a river in Jerusalem. You ever heard of a capital city that's not built on a river? Well, that's crazy, isn't it? Almost any capital city is built because there's a good supply of water right there. There's uh, Rome on the Tiber, London on the Thames. I mean, that's the way it is, isn't it? But Jerusalem, no river, but there's going to be one. It's going to be an amazing river, and uh, Zechariah is going to tell us about that river. Uh, but certainly that will, uh, when the Lord Jesus comes and puts his feet on the Mount of Olives, it will, it will do that. It will cause these things to take place. Um, it, his reign over the earth in the coming millennial kingdom. Look at Zechariah 14, verse 9. It says, The Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. uh, Isn't that a tremendous prospect? No more religious confusion, folks. Right? No more political confusion. There's going to be one king and one Lord, and his name one. You know what his name's going to be, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's going to be a tremendous thing. Uh, when, when, one thing that struck me in India, there are 330,000 gods that they worship. Can you imagine that? 330,000 gods. And um, there's a lot of confusion. I remember as a, as a kid growing up, I grew up Roman Catholic, and, and I remember uh, G- George Harrison of the Beatles came out with this song, My Sweet Lord. And I, I was all excited because I was thinking, oh, this is great. One of the Beatles has kind of become a Christian. You know, that was uh, what I was thinking. And then I listened more closely, and, of course, his sweet Lord was Krishna. And he's, Hari, Hari, Krishna, and all this kind of stuff. It wasn't the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the world's full of confusion, isn't it? Religious confusion abounds. But there's a coming day when that confusion will end. There's going to be one Lord, one King, and that will be our Lord Jesus Christ. What a, a, should, Don't we long for that? Don't we, don't we cry out in our heart, even so, come Lord Jesus. Long for that day when He will be King of kings and Lord of lords, and He will reign on the earth. And so Zechariah tells us lots of things about the Lord Jesus. And all I'm saying is when you come to the the inspiration of the scriptures, in my mind the only way you can rationally un, uh, come to terms with a teenager knowing details that there's no other way he could know other than by divine inspiration. And, of course, uh, people say, well, maybe Jesus had this man, messianic con- uh, you know, concept in his mind and tried to fulfill them. Well, it's kind of hard to choose your place of birth, isn't it? Right? I was born in Leeds in England. I had no choice in the matter. Now I'm glad. There's no other place on this planet I would rather be born than Leeds in England. I mean, it makes me a Yorkshireman, which is a tremendous thing, and that's a good thing to be. Uh, although I'm glad I don't live there now, but I'm, <laughs> I'm glad I'm from there. But, but I didn't have any choice in the matter. I couldn't arrange that in any way. So the Lord Jesus' fulfillment of these things are proof positive that he is the Messiah. But again, it's a proof of inspiration that this young man would be able to write all these details out for us. And so you can preach the whole life of the Lord Jesus using the Old Testament. Every detail. He's the only person whose biography was written before he was born. Usually we kind of wait till somebody's old or at least dead, don't we? His biography was written before he was born. Isn't that tremendous? I'll tell you, we, we're not following cunningly devised fables. This is the truth, isn't it? I mean, this is what, that's why uh, it's worth giving your lives for this, because this is, this is provable truth. The greatest, one of the greatest evidences of Christianity is fulfilled prophecy. And, and it's an amazing subject. So Zechariah, he's quoted by Matthew, Mark, John, and the Apostle Paul. Uh, And uh, I've got a list here of all the quotations of Zechariah in the New Testament. And I do want to say this for especially the young people, you know, kind of, there's a tendency, and we try to encourage young people to read through the Bible every year last evening. And one of the reasons for that is that I really believe it's impossible to fully understand the New Testament without the Old Testament you you're not getting the full picture right and that's why we need to read so we understand the comprehensiveness of the plan of god and yet it's a, it is a big book and it's a, it's a lifetime study and it's a thrilling study i tell you you never get you never get to the point where it gets old uh, i mean just uh, uh, i've read through the bible every year since i've got saved at least once um, that's 31 years And I can say this, that uh, much as I like Dickens, I could not read through David Copperfield 31 times. I would just be out of my mind. But you see, David Copperfield is not a living book. The Bible is the living Word of God. So you read through and you, you read a passage, and suddenly something jumps off the page, and you say to yourself, how come I never saw that before? Right? It's because it's new, it's living, there's just layers of truth there, and it's a tremendous thing. So, just a a kind of outline of uh, our prophecy of Zechariah. Um, The first six chapters uh, ask the question the foes of Israel, will they be defeated? And of course, remember that Israel are coming out of 70 years of. Of captivity, they've been under the dominion first of all of the Babylonians, and now lastly the Medo-Persian Empire. There's two more world empires to come after that, Uh, and so the question is, will these enemies be defeated? And that's the question. And certainly, what you're going to see there is that Zechariah in verses chapters one through six is given eight night visions in one night. Uh, For a teenager, he had certainly had a disturbed night's sleep. Eight night visions in one night. And these night visions are all going to say basically the the same idea, and that God is now for Jerusalem and Judah once again, and He's moving on behalf of them and beginning to deal with their enemies, okay so that's the the concept of the foes of Israel, will they be defeated and then Uh, Chapter 7 and 8 deals with a question, the fasts of Israel, will they be kept? And particularly one fast, and that was in the fifth month of the year. And ever since the destruction of the temple, um, they had kept a fast religiously on the date of the destruction of the temple in the fifth month every year. And so basically they're saying, well, now we're back in the land and we're about to rebuild the temple. Shall we keep fasting for the destruction of the temple because it's going to be rebuilt? And God says says to them simply this. He said, look, you really should fast out of love for me, not out of a calendar date. Right. That's that's why you should do it. Because you love me and you love my work and you love my people and you want to see the work of God done the way it should be done. That should be a motivation. And then finally, the future of Israel, chapters 9 through 14, is there any hope? And there really is. By the way, I want to just say something. I am committed to dispensational premillennialism. And there's a reason for that. And I I see tremendous threat today. I, I think Reformed theology is one of the most dangerous teachings that is out there today. And part of the reason is that they they believe in replacement theology, that, that the church has replaced Israel in the purposes of God. I want to tell you something. Your eternal security is dependent on God keeping His promises. And if God doesn't keep His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what makes you think He'll keep His promises to you? That's why... Romans 9 through 11 comes after chapter 8. Chapter 8 says, Nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And a Jew listening to that would say this, You can't trust God. He made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but look at us now. And Romans 9-11 through 11 is a defense of the fact that God is not done with Israel and He will keep every promise that was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so we can know for sure that our security is, is clear. Right? So that's why it's there. It's very, very critical. And so I'm going to be coming from that perspective that I believe that Israel have a future in the purposes of God. And if you disagree with me, well, you're, you're not disagreeing with me, you're disagreeing with Scripture. So you better take it up with the Lord because uh, there 's no question that God has a future for the nation of Israel, and uh, uh, by, let me just read you a passage because this is, um, uh, i 've been living in, in Ezekiel for the last um, probably three years and uh, and uh, just look at ezekiel thirty six as i 've been going through Ezekiel, one of the passages that 's really impressed me <clears throat> is um, is this section in ezekiel thirty six and I want to share it with you in terms of uh, 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 by way of encouragement for our own prayer life. <clears throat> so look at verse 19, Ezekiel thirty six nineteen. He says, I scattered them among the heathen. They were dispersed through the countries according to their way and according to their doings. I judged them. And when they entered into the heathen, whither they went, they profaned my holy name when they said to them, these are the people of the Lord and are gone forth out of his land. But I had pity for mine holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, whither they went. Therefore say I unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen, whither you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which is profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them, and the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. And the thing that strikes me is this whole section, which is beginning to develop God's future plans for Israel. And one of the things he says is, I'm not doing it for your sake. I'm not going to restore you to the land for your sake. I'm not going to do all these things. I'm going to do it because of my holy name's sake which you have profaned amongst the nations and the reason for god acting is because of his name which represents his character and that's the whole point isn't it if he doesn't keep his promises to abraham and isaac and jacob what does that say about his character he's not trustworthy so god is going to act on the basis of his holy name and i thought about that in terms of my prayer life Why am I praying for the assembly to be blessed of God? You know why? Because it's connected with that holy name of the Lord Jesus. That's why I want the assembly to be blessed. Because it's a reflection of him, isn't it? Don't do it for our sake. Don't do it for the sake of our children. Do it for the sake of your holy name. Don't you get that in the prayer he taught his disciples to pray? Our Father which art in heaven. What's the next bit? Hallowed be thy name. When we pray, and at the end of it we say, we pray these in the name of the Lord Jesus, not, that's not just a mantra, right? It's not just kind of a little formula. What we're saying is, your name is on the line here, God. That's what we're saying. Your character's on the line. If, if uh, we, we live in such a way which is uh, offensive in any way to your name, that doesn't look good for you. So, sanctify us, make us holy people, so that we make your name look good. So, uh, again, I'm getting sidetracked, but it's, a, it's just a very important thing, I think. So, uh, going back to the book of Zechariah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, the Word of God is so thrilling, it's sometimes hard to just kind of rein it all in. You know, I don't know if... Re- I'm sure you have the same problem, Rex, at times. There's so much in here. Um, anyway, we, we want to just kind of think a little bit more about Zechariah and... Um, Just let's look at chapter one, and um, yeah, let's get started with a text. I guess you're probably thinking, "Is this guy ever going to get started?" Um, Names are very significant in the Bible, and the name Zechariah—it's the most, one of the most popular names in the Old Testament. Uh, Apparently, uh, there are thirty people called Zechariah, and Zechariah means. Jehovah remembers. So you can understand why Jewish people would want to call their children Zechariah because because it's to do with the covenant promises of God, right? And so they're they're calling their children, saying this, Jehovah remembers. And what they're saying is, God, remember the promises you've made. Keep the promises, okay? Jehovah remembers, and then um, this uh, Zechariah, he's the son of Berachiah. Berachiah means Jehovah blesses. Jehovah remembers, Jehovah blesses. And then his grandfather is Idol the prophet. So it says uh, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berachiah, the son of Idol the prophet. And uh, Idol means appointed time. And so you put those three things together, and it's a beautiful idea, isn't it? Jehovah Jehovah remembers, Jehovah blesses in his appointed time. And God is going to remember his promises to the nation of Israel. And he is going to bless them, but it will be in his appointed time. And so, in a sense, in those names, we've got the idea of the whole book, of what God is planning to do and will do. Now, notice as well, it says uh, in the opening verses, uh, it says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord to Zechariah. All the way through the book, you're going to see this statement, The word of the Lord came unto me, or came to Zechariah. We'll see it in one 8 Uh, Chapter 6 verse 8, chapter 7 verse 1, chapter 7 verse 4, chapter 7 verse 8. Am I going uh, slow enough? <laughs> chapter 8, verse 1, and chapter 8, verse 18. So again, the idea is that it's it's again proof of the the verbal revelation of God to this man. God is revealing his word to this young man, Zechariah. The word of the Lord came unto me. The word of the Lord came unto me. All the way through the book, it's telling us that God's word came. And so um, we, we notice uh, in these opening verses too that it talks about the Lord of hosts it says the Lord has been sore displeased verse 2 with your fathers therefore say thou unto them thus saith the Lord of hosts turn ye unto me saith the Lord of hosts and I will turn to you saith the Lord of hosts now um, this phrase Lord of hosts very very uh, frequent repetitions uh, throughout the book In fact, uh, we we find that it's, you find it in Haggai 14 times, in two chapters. In the first eight chapters of Zechariah, the Lord of Horses, 48 times. 50 times altogether in the book, but 48 of them in the first eight chapters. So actually, the the phrase Lord of Hosts is used more in these two minor prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, than anywhere else in the Scriptures. Sixty-four times in total it says Lord of Hosts. Now what does that mean? It literally means the Lord of Armies. Okay, And it's the idea of the heavenly host are at his command. And so, for instance, when the Lord Jesus uh, was... um, Going to the cross, he said, I could have called 12 legions of angels, right? In other words, it, it, the, he, he is the commander, in a sense, of the army of the Lord of hosts. All he had to do was was say, Sikkim, and that was it. All those angels would have not only, they, well, if one angel could wipe out 185,000 crack Assyrian troops, what could 12 legions do? Okay, well, that's not the the maximum number that there are. There's these amazing armies of heaven. Remember back in the Old Testament where it seemed like uh, the nation of Israel were being overwhelmed and and there's the servant uh, of Elisha and God says, open his eyes. Open his eyes and and he sees the, the, the chariots of the host of heaven. Wouldn't it be something if, we, if God could just open our eyes just for a minute? You know, sometimes we think we're such a tiny remnant, right? And, and this, we're so, like when I was in India, 2.3% of the population are believers. Talk about being a tiny minority. And yet, we have the armies of the Lord of hosts on our side. Even without that, God's on our side, right? If God's for us, who can be against us? But he commands this vast army. So um, what's the the point of referring to the Lord of hosts so frequently in Haggai and Zechariah? Well, let's just think about how this is used in Scripture. Now, again, just as a, a principle, when you're studying the Word of God, one of the things that you want to do is when you see a phrase like Lord of hosts, is you want to go and look at the principle of first mention where was this first mentioned in the Bible and what can it teach me? And you'll be surprised where the first mention of the Lord of hosts is. It's actually in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Let's just go there. And it's in Hannah's prayer, the prayer of Hannah. Of course, it's a time of uh, departure. Uh, it's uh You know, we've just come to the end of the book of Judges. Remember the book of Judges? That wasn't exactly glory days for the nation of Israel, was it? It was the days when every man did that which was right in their own eyes. Right? Rebellion against God's rule was everywhere. And so here she is, and of course, at this point, the men are absolutely inept spiritually. Aren't they? Eli, the high priest failed to chastise his sons. His sons are sons of Belial, worthless sons, right? They're, they're abusing the privilege of priesthood, uh, doing horrible things. And so as Hannah looks out, she, she, she sees a time that just seems like it couldn't get any worse, Right? Uh, We've just come out of the the, the period of judges, and the men are absolutely, completely duds spiritually. Maybe some of the sisters feel that they're living in days like that today. It's amazing how the prayer of one sister is going to change the whole scene. That's encouragement, isn't it? Some of you sisters, maybe you feel like in your assembly, uh, the men are, you know, you're taking the role, uh, your role seriously. You're silent at the meetings, and yet often the men are dumb priests. I've been in meetings like that. Uh, My son Paul will tell you about this. I've been in assemblies where where it was just kind of cold silence, and nobody had anything good to say about the Savior. And I remember one time Paul wrote a little note to me, and he said, Dad, what's wrong? He could feel it. It was so bad. You know, that same day, at coffee break, those same men who had not one good word to say about the Lord Jesus were waxing eloquent about a college football game. You could tell where their hearts were the day before. They were at college football. That's where they were. And it was obvious. And so maybe, maybe you're in an assembly like that, sister, where that's the way it seems to be. Well, listen, Hannah changed the nation with her prayers. You can change your assembly with your prayers. And notice how she prays. It's just a tremendous prayer because what she does in days where it seemed like there's nobody faithful left and all hope seems to have gone. And um, let me see now. Verse 13, I said chapter 1, verse 3. It's verse 13. That's a typo there. It says, Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard before Eli, uh, and Eli thought she was drunken. And what did she pray? Verse 11 tells us, She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid, and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. And so what she does is she said, Lord, if you just give me a son, the men are useless. You give me a son. I want to pour my life into this lad, and I'm going to, give him an, I'm going to make him a Nazarite. He's going to be set apart from God, from his, from his womb, basically, and I'm going to give him back to you. And, of course, Samuel was the result of Hannah's prayers. And so she calls on the Lord of armies because there doesn't look to be much strength amongst the people of God right then. So where else can we look in a time of weakness? to the lord of armies what about us today we're folks we're a remnant we're a tiny remnant anymore aren't we and and the assemblies uh, probably this conference the history of this conference if you look back numbers wise we're probably a fraction of what there was here 50 years ago right we're in days of decline and departure maybe it's time for us to call upon the lord of hosts to step in Because we've made a mess of it, Lord, and we need your help here, right? You come and help us here. So it's a time of weakness. And she cries out, of course, Samuel is going to go and prepare the way for the glory days of the kingdom of David and Solomon. And it was Samuel that prepared the way for that. Now look at the last mention of Lord of hosts in Scripture. In James... Uh chapter five. And by the way, while we're looking there, can somebody tell me when I'm supposed to finish? Because I looked and I've forgotten. Five minutes. five minutes. Okay, that's good. That's all I need. James um, chapter five and verse four. <clears throat> Again, it's a time of uh of weakness, it seems. Uh it, it's a time when the workers are being abused uh by the wealthy landowners. And so it says, Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth, and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven. And so, again, that's James chapter 5, verse 4. And again, it's, it's a time where, where it seems there's tremendous unfairness and where, where people are abusing the people of God and they cry out to the Lord of hosts to take up their case. And the Lord of hosts, indeed, will take up their case and will deal with their enemies. Now, there's just one other thing that I want to mention about this. And uh, I was thinking about this idea of Lord of hosts, a time of weakness, a time when we feel overwhelmed, and a time where we need to recruit the armies of the Lord of hosts on our behalf. I'm thinking of Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. How do you think Martin Luther felt at that time? You talk about being alone, standing against the might of the Roman church at the zenith of its power. And here he is, standing on the word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other, God help me, right? And he writes this hymn, you know it well, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, Our helper he amid the flood, of mortal ills prevailing, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. In other words, I'm sure he felt the presence and the power of the enemy at that time, the attacks that he must have had as he's standing for the truth of God at, at a time like that. And then it says. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? In our own strength, we don't have a chance in our own strength. Were not that right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing, does ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Now listen to this. Lord, off his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Because this morning, folks, even though we're in days of weakness, in days of departure, we can call out like Hannah did, like Luther did, like the reapers in the day when they were being abused by the wealthy landowners. They can cry out to the Lord of hosts. Folks, I think we need to be crying out to the Lord of hosts, don't you? Lord, it seems overwhelming. It seems like there's departure on every side. It seems like our country is imploding. Where can we go? Where can we find help? I know exactly where we can go. The Lord of hosts, the one who is the captain of the armies of heaven, that right man who's on our side. Christ Jesus, it is He. What a privilege, isn't it, to be able to come to Him in a day of departure and weakness? Father, we think of these men, Haggai and Zechariah, as they led a small company, relatively speaking, in the days of the times of the Gentiles. They wanted to rebuild the house of God, but it seemed like the enemies were overwhelming. The Samaritans were seeking to frustrate every effort they made to build the house of God. Where was their resource? Where could they turn? We read that they turned to the Lord of hosts. We pray, Father, for ourselves that we in these days of departure might turn to the Lord of hosts. To thee, the Captain, Lord Jesus, of the armies of heaven, to act on our behalf, and we ask that you do it not for our sakes but for the sake of thy holy name which is being profaned in this nation we ask that you would you would come in blessing once again revive us O oh lord in the midst of the years and we'll give thee the glory in the name of the lord jesus christ amen